right, let's go to Genesis chapter 46. Genesis chapter 46. The title of tonight's message is Fulfilling God's Will in Pharaoh's Wagons. And so, fulfilling God's will in Pharaoh's wagons. Genesis chapter 46 does include a roll call of all of Jacob's children and grandchildren. And so, we're going to read the first seven verses. And then we're going to skip down to verse 28 and uh, pass over the roll call of all the names that are listed there. So that we get the main idea of the chapter. Genesis chapter 46 verse 1, And Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices unto the God of his father Isaac. And God spake unto Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation." I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will also surely bring thee up again. And Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. And Jacob rose up from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried Jacob their father and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they took their cattle and their goods which they had gotten in the land of Canaan and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his seed with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his seed brought he with him into Egypt. Verse 28. And he sent Judah before him unto Joseph to direct his face unto Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. And Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to meet Israel his father to Goshen and presented himself unto him. And he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said unto Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen thy face, because thou art yet alive. And Joseph said unto his brethren and unto his father's house, I will go up and show Pharaoh, and will say unto him, My brethren and my father's house, which were in the land of Canaan, are come unto me. And the men are shepherds, for their trade hath been to feed cattle, And they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And it shall come to pass when Pharaoh shall call you and shall say, What is your occupation? That you shall say, Thy servants' trade hath been about cattle from our youth even until now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination unto the Egyptians. Let's pray. Dear Lord, once again, we count a privilege to be in your house and to be in your presence and to hear from your uh, word. Father, I just pray and ask that you'll lead us and guide us tonight. Help us, Lord, to reap the rewards of Bible study. Help us to mine out the jewels that you have embedded here. And uh, may we take these nuggets home with us and may we live off of the riches of them this week. Father, I pray and ask that you will make us more like Christ through our interaction with your word tonight, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I love our study through the book of Genesis. It is different than our study in the New Testament. Uh, So much of it is narrative, and it's describing the journey of men and women that God called and was working to fulfill His plan. And while 
the Old Testament focuses on a national level oftentimes, looking at Israel as a nation, as a chosen people, as God's vehicle for working in the world. Uh, and he had specific guidelines and laws and a plan for them. So much of it is applicable to our Christian life as you and I journey through this life with Christ. We can learn from the events and interactions that God has with people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And we can learn things about God and learn things about ourselves and we can make that application. Well, as we read this text tonight, what I see that stands out to me is the will of God. If you noticed in verses 3 and 4, God is speaking to Jacob and he makes three I will statements. He says, I will there make of thee a great nation. I will go down with thee into Egypt and I will surely also bring thee up again. And so God is expressing his will to Jacob for his life for this period of time and for the nation of Israel for this period of time. And so as we are thinking about that and observing that, it's a reminder to me that God has a will for every one of our lives. The will of God is God's plan, God's desire for your life and for my life. And by taking a look at Jacob and how he interacted and responded to the will of God, we can draw some things out to help us understand how do we discern the will of God and how can God bring about his will in our lives if we have certain limited resources. And so the focus of the message is fulfilling God's will in Pharaoh's wagons. And so just let me give you three, three overarching statements about this, and, uh, and I'll elaborate on those. Number one, fulfilling God's will should be every Christian's goal. Uh, fulfilling God's will should be every Christian's goal. As I read this passage of Scripture, I am reminded of the fact that if we uh, go ahead in uh, the Bible one chapter, we'll learn how old uh, Jacob was when he made this journey. He was 130 years old. According to chapter 47, verse 28, he was 130 years old when he left. He lived another 17 years when he got down into Egypt. Now, I can imagine... Uh, how I feel uh, some days at 45, what it would be like to wake up at 130. Uh, I, I'm telling you, I, I could see that there would be a lot of other things that Jacob may want to do besides pick up his whole life and existence and relocate to a foreign country at this stage in his life. But something motivates him to do that. And as I think back over the, the biography of his grandfather and his father and his own life, I believe that Jacob has come to the realization that God's will is the best possible plan that he can have for his life. He tried it his own way. Remember, Jacob was self-willed. He was the supplanter. He was the finagler. He was the one who manipulated situations to try and get what he wanted and God allowed that to blow up in his face and taught him some impactful lessons through his crafty uncle Laban and the old switcheroo with Rachel and Leah, uh, the changing of his wages when it came to the cattle that he was raising. And so Jacob at 130 years old is different than Jacob at a young man. And Jacob's matured to the point where if it's God's will, then he wants to do that. 
And I'm telling you, that is a, that is a sweet spot to get into in the Christian life where we desire to do God's will more than we desire to do our own will. There is something that exists inside of us as human beings that drives us to, uh, to fulfill certain desires that we have in our life. And when we're young and we're approaching adulthood and we're coming into those early years, sometimes that's such a driving force that we just focus on what we want to do, what we want to be, where we want to go, and we have a hard time surrendering to God's will. But I tell you, God's uh, schoolhouse of life will teach us a lot of lessons and bring us to a point where we realize, you know what, the best thing I can do with my life is follow God's plan, God's will, not my own. I, I am reminded of Jesus's expression of this in the garden of gethsemane if anybody had a reason to not want to do the will of the father it was jesus christ as he is in that garden and he is praying that night before his crucifixion it is not so much the cross that he fears it is not the beating of the roman soldiers which was atrocious it is the wrath that his father is going to have to pour out on him for the sin of the world. And the Bible says that in that night when Jesus was praying, that his countenance was different than it had ever been, that he was extremely burdened and sorrowful and heavy, and that as he prayed and uh, wrestled with this in prayer that he began to sweat great drops of blood and the bible tells us that three times he prayed if it is possible for this cup to pass from me let it be so but nevertheless not my will but thine be done what an amazing example of obedience that christ teaches us and when you and I think that doing God's will is hard because we've got to sacrifice something that we want to do, we need to think about Jesus in the garden and how that his will was completely surrendered to his Father. And so Christians uh, should desire to fulfill God's will. It should be our goal in life. We ought to pray for that every day. Was that not part of Jesus' uh, prayer that he taught a pattern to his disciples? Lord, teach us to pray. And he says, pray after this manner. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so you and I ought to learn to desire to do God's will, to bend our will to his, because we, like Jacob and like the nation of Israel, as it plays out in the narrative, are stubborn and stiff-necked people and we are set oftentimes on doing what we want to do instead of what God wants us to do and so fulfilling God's will should be the goal of every Christian I believe that Jacob here is motivated by that it should not be success sometimes that's the goal that people set all they want to do is prove that they have accomplished something and they want to be successful and they want to get the recognition and the respect and, 
And I understand that, especially if you grew up uh, in, a, in a poor family and you felt like you needed to earn people's respect. Oftentimes that launches people into this drive to be successful, but that should not be our greatest goal in life. Now, Jacob was done with success at this point. And not only should it not be motivated by success, here's the other danger, and I think this happens uh, when we get past midlife, and that's security. Security. The older we get, the more we value that, don't we? But I'm telling you, for the first 40 years of my life, I never thought about insurance. I didn't care about insurance. And I don't know how many years I, I went without insurance. There were a lot of years that we, we did not have insurance. Just didn't think about that. I, I was healthy. I was fine. We're good. You know what? We don't go to the doctor. We can take care of ourselves. But, man, I'm telling you, something has happened in this fourth decade of my life, and I want to make sure that I've got insurance because I understand the, the, the gamble that is there now if something arises. But, you know, as we get older, we do begin to think more about security. And while we are not called to be foolish, while we should not be frivolous, we also must not let security become an anchor that keeps us from launching out and doing God's will. Because Jacob could have very easily said, I've got security here. While there may be a famine in the land, look, I, 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 I have great herds, right? Just think back about all of the herds that are listed for Abraham and Isaac and now have been passed on to Jacob, and Jacob has developed his own. And then he's got these uh, 11 sons that have been working these herds and growing these herds. I'm telling you, he was a village unto himself, and he could have said, you know what, I, I don't know what's going on down there, but I know what I've got here and my security is more important. But when God says, I will that you go, I will make you a nation, and I will bring you back again or bring back your family, then Jacob trusts God and he doesn't cling to his security blanket. And so fulfilling God's will ought to be the goal for every Christian. Number two, uh, we need to be in a place where we can pray about God's will, where we can pray about it and make sure that it is God's will and not just a good opportunity. As we come into this chapter, we, we remember that Joseph has just recently revealed himself to his brothers who were in Egypt to buy food. He finds out that his father is still alive. He knows that there's five more years of famine that is coming. And so he sends his brothers back uh, with money, with raiment, with garment, and... Pharaoh sends wagons back and says, Joseph, go get the rest of your family. Tell them to leave all their stuff up there. I'll provide everything for them. Just load them up and bring them down. And so at the end of chapter 45, the brothers and the wagons come rolling in to Jacob's homestead there. And so Jacob is faced with this opportunity. What an opportunity it is. Uh, never in Jacob's life would he have believed that Pharaoh would send wagons and supplies to bring them in Egypt. Do you realize that was, that was never, that wasn't in, jo in Jacob's wildest dreams that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, would send his wagons up to transport them back down, right? That's like 
Like, that's like the president sending Air Force One to the Mountain Empire Airport to pick you up, take you up to Washington and spend some time with him, right? And, uh, and so, I mean, you're just, you, it's not even, that's not even something that we even think about. That's not even a possibility, you know, maybe not even in a desire. There's no indication that this was a desire in Jacob's heart. But man, what an opportunity, right? I mean, Pharaoh's wagons are parked out front. We've got piles of money falling out of my kids' pockets. They're all wearing new clothes. And, and, and man, Joseph is the prime minister down there. Here is a good opportunity. But you know what strikes me is that Jacob, the opportunist, does not fully commit until he has prayed and got God's confirmation. And I say that you and I need to be in a place where we can pray about it and make sure that it's God's will and not just a good opportunity. There's been a lot of Christians who latched on to what they thought was a good opportunity and it turned out not to be God's will and it wreaked havoc in their lives. And if you and I are not in a place where we're walking with God and we're in fellowship with God and we've got a real relationship with God and we're praying to God and we can sense God's leading and hear His voice in His Word, then we're going to have a hard time discerning this. I say this because of where Jacob went. If we look in our text, it says that Israel took his journey with all that he had and he came to Beersheba. Beersheba is located near the southern border of Israel. So, as Jacob is beginning to make that southern descent, before he leaves Canaan, before he leaves the Promised Land, before he leaves the realm and the territory that his father and grandfather have settled, he stops at this place called Beersheba, and he makes sacrifices, and he prays to God, and he gets an answer from God. Now, like I said, the Old Testament does differentiate from where we are today because God is talking to a nation and He is dealing with them in a certain way, but the principle that is laid out is there for us. Well, if you and I go back and look about Beersheba, we will find that this was a sacred place, this was a holy place, this was an established place by Abraham and used by Isaac where they would go to worship and talk to God. And so the first time that we see it mentioned is back in Genesis chapter 21. Genesis 21, Abraham is the character of the narrative in this text. And we'll just jump into the end of the chapter uh, Abraham has had some interactions with Abimelech. He is a Philistine uh, royalty, if you will, and there's been some controversy over a well that Abraham's servants dug, and so he meets with Abimelech in this place called Beersheba. He actually names it Beersheba because it means the sevenfold oath or covenant because he sacrificed seven lambs to make a covenant between him and Abimelech. But notice what it says in Genesis 21, verse 33. And Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the Philistines' land many days. And so Abraham dug a well in this place. There's so much imagery here. 
He dug a well in this place. There's a, there's a source of life-giving water. Then he also planted a grove. And groves in the Bible oftentimes marked off sacred ground where people would meet with their God. And he called on the name of the Lord there. And so Abraham lays the foundation for this spiritual place. Well, move forward about 80 years, and you'll find Abraham's son Isaac also comes to this place. Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26, verse 23. And he, that is Isaac, went up from thence to Beersheba. So after he had a, a backsliding episode, he comes back into the land. He comes back to the Lord. He goes to Beersheba. In verse 24, And the Lord appeared unto him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham thy father. Fear not, for I am with thee, and will bless thee and multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham's sake. And he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there and there Isaac's servants digged a well again we get some more of this rich imagery that speaks spiritually to us Isaac redug the well when we read into this context, what we find is that, that that well had been filled in by somebody that opposed Isaac. And so Isaac has the well redug. And so the water is flowing again. And, of course, in Scripture, water pictures life. Water pictures the Word of God. Water pictures the Spirit of God. I mean, it is so emblematic of this flow of spiritual life that comes from God not only does he redig the well, but now he builds an altar. An altar in the Old Testament was not just a place of sacrifice, while it was that. It was a place to give offerings to God, but it was actually a place that was carved out and was deeded over to the God of heaven. This is your altar, God. He didn't use it to work on his lawnmower, right? Even though it might have been the right height for that. He didn't throw his old plow up there and sharpen the blade. Why? Because it was specifically set apart for God. And anything that went on that altar was then God's. And so he would sacrifice the animals on that altar. He would pour the blood on that altar. He would use that altar as a place of sacrifice and offering to God. So here's Isaac. He's wandered away. He's become self-sufficient. Now he decides to come back, and he comes back to this place called Beersheba where his father had planted a grove and, and called on the name of the Lord. He comes back. He redigs the well. He opens the water flow back up. He builds an altar. He calls on the name of the Lord and God speaks to him and renews his covenant there so I say all that to say that in Genesis 46 when Jacob is heading south he doesn't stop at Beersheba just because it's a good resting place he goes there because that is a place that his family has established as a sanctuary in which you can get with God 
It's like Bethel for Jacob. Remember, he traveled through Bethel the first time, heading, running away, and there he meets God, and God speaks to him and makes him a promise. And when he's coming back home, he comes to that same sacred piece of ground called Bethel where he once again speaks to God. And when he gets away from the Lord, he brings his family back to Bethel, and he recommits the Lord. And so there were sacred ground in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was a place where they could get in touch with God. Now, you and I don't need a piece of real estate. We don't, need, we don't even need an altar. Because when you and I get saved, you and I become the temple of God. The Holy Spirit of God moves inside of us. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own. You're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are the Lord's. And so you and I don't need a piece of ground to go pray on. We have this relationship with God. But you and I have to make sure that we are walking with the Lord, that we are spending time with the Lord, so that we can be in this place of prayer where we can hear from the Lord. Look, prayer doesn't work so great when you've tuned God out, tuned God out, tuned God out, and then all of a sudden you're in over your head, and now you're crying out to God, Oh God, please show me what to do. Help me, God. You know what? Sometimes God will let you live in your mess. before he responds to you does that mean no it's a great parenting tool i've done that before right you want to make a bad decision all right live with the repercussions of your bad decision you're going to feel the weight of that decision that you have made god does that for us sometimes but you know what when we're walking with the lord and we're spending time with the lord and and, and we are reading his word praying to him and then we do have a crisis or we do make a mistake we do something you know what we're we're in a place where we can call out to the lord and we are in fellowship with him and we can discern what he is leading in our lives and that's what jacob seeks to do here he's not just following a good opportunity He's getting on praying ground. Y'all remember that expression? They, they used to say that in the old days. I got to get on praying ground. What did that mean? Did that mean they had a little square of dirt out in the yard where they went to pray? No. That meant they prayed enough till they felt like that they had the ear of God and that they could sense when God was speaking to them. Let me tell you something. That doesn't happen with 30-second prayers before breakfast in the morning. That praying ground shows up in your life when you've made a habit of prayer and you learn to walk with God and fellowship with God in the good times as well as in the bad times. And so we ought to be in that place where we are spending time with God every single day, uh, seeking to hear from His Word and pouring out our hearts to Him so that when we do need to discern what is God's will for my life, we're in a place where we can hear him then the third observation that i want to make here and this is where we'll spend the rest of our time is that god is not limited by your resources god is not limited by your resources you know oftentimes when we daydream whether it's about life or the will of god we we are limited by what we can see that we have the resources 
to do. And that, while may be a good practice when it comes to the physical realm, right? Like, you know, you shouldn't try um, jumping off of the roof of your house if you know that you can't fly, right? I mean, just because you feel lighter than air doesn't mean that's going to work out for you. We, we have to operate within that realm. But when we're talking about the will of God, you and I ought to dream big, right? You and I ought to understand that God's will for my life is not limited by my resources, that God can do great and mighty things in your life, even if you don't see the resources there to accomplish that. Think about what's going on in Jacob's life. Jacob does not have these resources, but all of a sudden, the Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at that time, sends his wagons up to go pick him and all of his family up to haul them down to Egypt and to give them the, the best piece of pasture land that's in the whole country, Goshen, and to insulate them from outside enemies, uh, to nourish them during a time of famine, and to incubate within the womb of Egypt the nation of Israel, which in its time there grows from 70 people to over 2 million people when God is ready to bring them back into the land. And so... Uh, God is not limited by our resources. Never in Jacob's wildest dreams would he have ever imagined that Pharaoh would send his wagons to come get him. But lo and behold, they show up. And he travels, he fulfills the will of God in the wagons of Pharaoh. So let me just remind you of a few other times this sort of thing happened. Uh, there was a man named Balaam that uh, was disobedient to God, and he was uh, going to, uh, to align with God's enemies, and he had him a donkey, right? And he's riding along, and, and all of a sudden, his donkey turns off and makes a hard turn into the field. And Balaam gets upset at a donkey, and he uh, gives it a spanking, and he gets it back on the path. Now, I don't know if you guys have experience with donkeys. I know some of you all own some. Uh, I, I rode some donkeys when I was in high school. They, they had this thing that uh, they said that it was a fundraiser, but I think it was really the school administration getting back at the students. It was called donkey basketball. And they found some donkey farmer who raised the most ornery donkeys in the country, and he would haul them in there and make them good and mad. And then you got your donkey, and you had to ride down the basketball court or get your donkey down the basketball court, and you had to be sitting on the donkey to shoot the basketball for it to count. Well, man, I learned that is not a beast that wants to be ridden. They have more moves. They have more moves than John Travolta. And not only could they, you know, throw you back, but they had this one real good move. They could, they, could, they could walk forward and then bend straight over like that. And it's literally impossible to stay on the donkey's back. And so I feel Balaam's pain when he's dealing with this donkey. So he gets the donkey back on the path and he's going down by a wall. And all of a sudden his donkey slams him into the wall and crushes his foot, it says. And so he gets even 
matter at this donkey, and he uh, beats it again. And then he's going along a little ways. He gets back on the path, and this time the thing just falls down on the ground and will not get up. And so Balaam finds him a stick and commences to beating the donkey. Right? And then the donkey begins to talk to him, which I think is one of the most humorous things in all of the Bible. Because when you read the exchange that goes on there, Balaam is not phased by the fact that his donkey starts talking. The donkey asks him intelligent questions. Have I not been your donkey since I was a little baby donkey? And have I not been a good donkey to you? Why are you beating me with a stick? And Balaam says, listen, son, if I had a sword, I would use it on you right now. And the donkey reasons with him some more and speaks in a full sentence. And you know what Balaam's response is? Nay! It's in the Bible. Balaam's donkey speaks in a full coherent sentence and Balaam sounds like the donkey when he says nay. And when the story unfolds, we find that there was an angel sent from God that was going to kill Balaam. And Balaam's donkey was used by God to save his life three times. That's pretty impressive. Uh, God can use a donkey to accomplish his will. How about, how about what we read this morning in Habakkuk? God used Nebuchadnezzar, a foreign king, to correct and judge his nation of Israel. In, in Ezra, we learn that God used the first king of the Persian Empire, Cyrus, to decree that the temple needed to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And the people that he had just taken captive, now he returns back and gives them funding to rebuild the temple of God. Why, no Jew would have ever believed that that temple would have been financed by a Persian king. A little later on, we read of a man named Nehemiah, who is a king's cupbearer. He's king to the sixth, uh, he's a cupbearer to the uh, sixth king of Persia. And he has a burden to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Well, when they conquered a city in that day and time, they would break down the walls and they would burn the gates so that they could control that city more easily so it wouldn't be fortified. So the fact that the king of Persia not only gives Nehemiah time off from his job to go, but he also gives him letters of authorization to go, and then he also gives him all the financing that he needs to get the materials that he needs to buy. He, on top of that, he sends a guarded escort with him to take him through the dangerous part of the journey to go back and rebuild the walls and rebuild the gates of the city of Jerusalem. So I'm telling you, God's will for your life is not limited by your resources. God can use anybody and anything that he wants to. And probably the most amazing example of this is that God used a Roman execution cross to bring about salvation for the world. A Roman cross... Do you realize that as much as those Jews hated Jesus, they did not have the authority to kill him? And even if they were to use their method of execution, it would not have satisfied the requirements of atonement 
because their method of execution was stoning. And the requirement is that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So Jesus had to die in a way in which blood was shed. And so God allowed the Roman Empire to be in control at that time, and he allowed their method of execution to be a Roman cross. And he allowed Pilate to condemn him to death. In fact, Pilate at one point has this exchange with Jesus when Jesus doesn't respond, doesn't defend himself, and says, Don't you know that I have power to take your life and I have power to give your life? And Jesus says, You don't have any power except for the power that is given for, to you from above. What's he acknowledging? That God used that Roman cross to bring salvation to the world. What an amazing God we have. And so when you're thinking about God's will for your life, it ought to be the number one goal. That, that ought to be what we are pursuing uh, is God's, God's will for our life. We ought to be walking with God in such a way that, that he can whisper and we hear what he is saying. He doesn't have to shout to get our attention. And then we need to be reminded that God's not limited by our resources. We, we ought to dream big as to what God can do in and through our life. Uh, let me give you just a couple of stories that, that came to mind as I was preparing this message. When we were in Colorado, we were in one of the most affluent areas in the state. We were in the, uh, the Roaring Fork Valley. It's the same valley that Aspen is in. And uh, Aspen is just full of... of well, what they said when we moved to Colorado was that the billionaires moved into Aspen and forced the millionaires down Valley to Glenwood Springs. That's what we heard. Uh, so that, that's, a, that's a description. So second homes, there were sheiks that had uh, homes there in Aspen. There were uh, actors. There were movie stars. There were politicians. I mean, it was just, it was just a crazy uh, affluent place. And so that drove the real estate market up really expensive to live there, to find property, to do any of that stuff. And so here we are, a church plant. And when we first get there, we're renting this old building, and we are one of three renters. We use it on Sunday afternoons and Wednesday nights. The Apostolic Church had it on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights. And the Salvation Army had it Monday through Friday. But the rent was cheap, and so that's why we were there. And, uh, and as God moved along, uh, he allowed us to find a building for a lease. Uh, we had saved up money. We were doing well, and we were able to, to rent that, that building. Well, uh, when we leased that building from a secular company, uh, not, a, not, not Christians, never, never professed that, uh, they, they replaced the heating system in that building before we moved in at a cost of $45,000. They really didn't have to do that. that. That was a commercial lease, and the burden is on the leasee to renovate it. And so we had to renovate that whole building, and we did renovate that whole building. 
but they voluntarily replaced the heating system for us at a cost of $45,000. Not only that, they gave us free rent during the time that we were renovating that property. And so it took us uh, four or five months to renovate that property. Amazingly, after we signed the contract, they said, you don't have to start paying until you move in in January. So we got several thousand of dollars towards free rent there. And then... Uh, we were play, paying triple net is what they called it. So you had to pay not just your lease, but you also had to pay the taxes and you had to pay the insurance. And so if I remember correctly, we were paying $3,700 a month to re lease this little 5,000 square foot metal building that had once been a, a, a rental uh, shop. And the, the market fell out in 2008 when we were there. And a lot of our people were in the trades, and so they were working on homes, and when the housing market tanked, so did those jobs, and so did the income into the church. There were times that, that we could not make payroll because we just didn't have enough money in the bank coming in. So it got very, very lean. And, uh, and so I, I prayed about it, and... I called him up. I called the, the property manager that worked for Butler Rents, and I just explained to him, I said, here's where we are. And I said, well, I'm not trying to play the church card. I'm not trying to, I'm not, all I'm telling you is, man, we don't have the money coming in, and we cannot afford to pay all of our bills at paying this amount of rent. And he reduced our rent by $700 a month, just like that, just like that. Took it from 3,700 down to, to 3,000. And then after, our, after I left and the economy was still struggling, my assistant pastor who became the pastor had to call them again and they took it down another $500 for them. Man, that just is not heard of. That, that, that doesn't happen. Also during that time, like I said, we were struggling on income and I was praying, asking God, you know, Lord, please provide for us. Show us a way. How can we make money? And one day I had a guy stop by the church office and I was there and he, he knocked on the door, came on in, and he explained to me that he was from an engineering firm. We were right downtown in Glenwood Springs and he, had a, he, he was part of an engineering firm that was about two blocks away from us. But there was no parking downtown. And they had been renting spaces from some other place, but that fell through. And he noticed that we had a parking lot. And he just wondered if we would rent four parking spaces to them. And they would pay us $75 a month for each space. And so for a year or two, we had $300 a month coming in for four spaces that never had four vehicles in it at one time. The most I ever saw were two vehicles parked out, but they needed to have those spaces when the parking wasn't available at their shop. You know, when you think about that, and those are small stories, that's not like Pharaoh sending his wagons up, but there is one story that's kind of like that, and that is we had invited a pastor from Oklahoma to come preach a missions conference for us in Glenwood Springs. Well, when a church does that, the burden is on the church to provide transportation to that person 
and then when they get there, you're supposed to provide them lodging and food, and then you give them a love offering or an honorarium for their time that they're there, and they go back. And so, man, I, it was quite expensive to fly people into Colorado. And, and so I, I wanted this guy to come, but I was worried about being able to pay him. And one day he calls me up and he says, have you booked tickets for us yet? And I said, no, not yet. He says, hold off. There may be something that's, that's working out here. And, uh, and so he called me back and says, okay, you don't have to worry about it. I have a, I have a flight that's going to fly me, and I need you to pick me up at the Rifle Airport. Well, the Rifle Airport was not a commercial airport. It's like the Mountain Empire Airport. I mean, the commercial airport was in Aspen. And so I said, the Rifle Airport? How, what are you doing? He says, well, I have a friend who is a flight instructor, and he has students from China who are being trained to fly commercially in the United States, and they have to fly, uh, they want to fly so many hours out, a long flight, four hours out, four hours back. And so I talked to him about this place, and he said that he could make that part of their flight plan, and me and my wife can fly with them. By the way, these, these Chinese uh, flight students are here uh, at, on behalf of the Chinese government, so the communist Chinese government is paying to fly me out to your church to preach on missions. God's not limited by our resources, is he? And so let's be like Jacob in this text and not be so anchored by security or su success that, that we don't open our eyes and see the possibilities that God has because he can do abundantly above all that we think or ask. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this beautiful testimony in the life of Jacob, the way that you uh, used Pharaoh's wagons to fulfill your will. Uh, Jacob did not have to leave one thing in Canaan. He packed it all up and had it carried down on someone else's uh, expense. Father, I just pray and ask that you'd help us to think big when we think about your will for our lives. And to realize that you are not limited by the resources that we see. But that you, Lord, own the cattle on a thousand hills and you own the hills too. The earth is yours and the fullness thereof. And so the only limitations that you have are with our willingness to step out by faith and follow you. God, help us to be people who trust you and take bold steps of faith, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.